0: This is the Distinctly Detroit Podcast. The only pod that explores why one wants to be in the D. I am your host, Fyodor Ship III, the director of the University of Michigan Detroit Center. Join me as I interview students, scholars, leaders, and innovators about living, working, and loving in Detroit. Welcome back to the Distinctly Detroit Podcast. Today, our guest is Professor Dara Hill. Uh, Professor Hill works at the University of Michigan-Dearborn campus in reading and language arts. She recently received praise and a grant from the 2023 Engage Detroit workshop for her current research called the Best Classroom Project. This research project aims to assist parents in Detroit to make informed decisions about their children's school choices in the city, while also supporting students in the college admissions process. Please help us welcome the innovative Professor Dara Hill. Welcome on the show. Glad to have you here.
1: Thank you for having me. Yeah,
0: appreciate (laughs) it. Now, um... Just for the record for everyone Dara and I both went to high school and undergrad together so we've known and grew up in the same neighborhood so we've known each other for a long time and I'm really excited to get her here because I think she's doing some really cool uh, work in the city especially around educational access and informed decision making so we're going to get into all of that but um What part of the city did you grow up in?
1: I grew up in Northwest Detroit, more specifically, Wisconsin and Thatcher.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, right there, you can pinpoint it. Yes. And um, you didn't go the conventional route in terms of your educational path in the city, like the neighborhood uh, elementary schools, Bagley Elementary, and we lived in the Bagley District, Right, but you didn't attend Bagley. That's true. Where did you start school?
1: I started school at Detroit Children's School, which is Mm -hmm. a, a little teeny tiny school just outside of Wayne State University, like okay. oh, like. Uh, do you know where the Pistons have their no practice like, facility? Right, yeah. like literally like a I mean, block in away from Junction there, area. Milwaukee Junction area. Yeah, uh, like a school in this little like warehouse. <laughs> okay. Um, with no walls, and it was K through six, and. Like granola hippie teachers that we called by their first names. Uh, Adrian and Molly, they wore Birkenstocks. <laughs> uh, and so I attended there until third grade when the school closed. It was really super small. I think by the time they closed, I was like the one third grade student. Oh, it was wow. just really teeny tiny. Okay. So it started off with like 30 kids and then like dwindled down more and more. But uh, it was a unique experience. Uh, and my teacher, Adrian, ended up Becoming a master Waldorf teacher, which gives you like a little sense that it was like very unconventional. Okay. So I attended Burton International School on Cass and Peterborough, also in the same general area. Yeah. Um, followed by Cass Tech, so it, like Cass and second. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Aren't they same area? Right. Now, one thing is, um, you you grew up in Detroit and. If I may ask, uh, how do you identify uh, um, ethnic, ethnically, or um, you know, how do you identify race-wise?
1: It's it's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> so I do consider myself African American. Yeah. But um, I have German and Jamaican roots. So my father is German. My mother is Jamaican. So I'm the daughter of immigrant, like immigrant parents. Okay. Uh, so having parents that didn't grow up in this country made me a a bit different culturally from my peers in in my neighborhood and really every everybody else that I ever encountered because I've just had experiences traveling to Germany um, traveling to New York to experience my Jamaican family Mm. so not the common convention of parents who came from the south who left to escape persecution and to escape racism and discrimination. More so coming for opportunities, like a bit of a different, like a different way. Like they weren't running from something so much as coming to something. Well, I guess my dad's side was running from something. No, I, I, And
0: again, I think it's just funny, like say, having pretty much feel like I've known you all my life, but like we didn't go to elementary or middle school together, but right. we grew up in the same neighborhood. And I remember like kids used to always think you were Arab. Like, really? Yeah, I'm like thought you like <laughs> Chaldean or something right. like because a- Arab you, Indian, yeah, just, right. Lebanese. It, it yeah. is just it is just as a, and then having an opportunity to get you know, get to know you better like in undergrad and in adulthood and professionally and things like that. I've always thought you the most a very fascinating person. Oh,
1: thank you uh, because
0: of you grew up in the same neighborhood as I did in the right. same space and but your background your history is so different. And it's like people, you know, you as a child, you don't can't you have a hard time grasping the difference in other people and or knowing that, but knowing that it was people around who had other stories to tell, different experiences, brought something different to the table. I've just always found you fascinating. That's why I was like oh, thank excited you. to get you on the show and just talk about it because the work you're doing now is still so relevant in the city and relevant to so many people around education. So um, you you grew up in the city, you get you know, you attended different kinds of schools. Right. You what prompted you to attend the University of Michigan?
1: My parents made me go there. Okay. <laughs> that was really the only reason. I it was yeah. between Michigan State and University of Michigan and we duked it out into the end. I mean, they dragged me to Michigan kicking and screaming, I did not want to go.
0: Okay. Initially. Interesting. Yeah, I and, didn't think
1: I could handle
0: it. I would think you would have wanted to go somewhere out of state. What what made you want to go to Michigan State?
1: Uh my best friend was going there. Okay. We were slated to be roommates, Molly Baltman. We were gonna be roommates. Yeah. And um I mean <laughs> her parents tried to encourage my parents to send me to Michigan State and they were very adamant about me going to Michigan. Okay. So well, they was decided it about Michigan
0: they really liked.
1: You know, it's the best university in the state. <laughs>
0: there is I mean, it, I mean, it is. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's the, that's the truth. But I was afraid of it. I didn't think that I could handle the rigor. Okay. Because Michigan was just regarded as, you know, it's like really Ivy League. Yeah. When you think about it, and I was intimidated by it. Okay. I just, I mean, I remember. Like, they dragged me out kicking and screaming. I did not want to go. Either. And then I had to go a semester over the summer. I don't want to go over the summer. Are you summer kidding break? I um, know, but it was awesome like the best time. experience ever. Yeah. So, like, I t- so here's my mom. I told you you would like it. Yeah. <laughs> and Sorry I did. Said. I did in the end. But, I mean, it was just the, you know, it really wasn't my choice Yeah. In in the first place.
0: Yes. Oftentimes. Yeah. So I ended up there. Shorter. Right. Okay. Okay. And and
1: we're, we're paying for it. So this yeah. is where you're going. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> well, then there's that. Yes. The final
0: set. And so you're at Michigan, you're dragged there kicking and screaming. Pretty much. Uh, yeah. Once you got to, once you realize you like it, or once you got to start making your own choices, you chose to pursue a path to become an educator. Right. What, what inspired you to want to go into education?
1: my schooling experiences in Detroit were just remarkable. So going to citywide schools where I had friends who lived in a diversity of neighborhoods and historic districts across, you know, so it's really having experiences with peers across boundaries of race and class. uh, And I really thought that was normal, you know, and like much later on I realized that it wasn't, but having teachers who genuinely took an interest in us. So one of my teachers from middle school actually came to one of my gymnast- gymnastics competitions, like who makes the effort to come watch you compete? Um, and then my cast Tech teachers just maintained high expectations for me as well. I went through the commercial art curriculum and I remember Mr. Eshkanian, this didn't come out earlier, <laughs> but um, He would have us pick up like a tea and a muffin from Astoria downtown, like, I just need a tea and a muffin, just go get it for me and I'll (laughs) mark the present. (laughs) So it was almost like just this coming of age, you're getting more independent, you're like right in the middle of the city. We had Trapper's Alley that was close by. It was just this really unique experience and as much as... You know, people don't like to talk about the Cosby Show because of uh, Bill Cosby's indiscretions and whatever happened with that. Um, I, I separate the artist from you know from the actual art of it. Yeah. To have a portrayal of a middle school and high school experience that was multiracial, citywide, that looked like what I experienced, i have never seen anything like that in television. And to have lived that experience was just so provocative, and then um, you know, just and being in, in like a, a fame type of landscape at CAS, yeah. where you had exposure to kids across you know music, city, art, performing arts, yeah. uh, architecture. I mean, there were so many unique personalities that came with that. It was just an amazing experience. Okay. And I just, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, okay. Something about just having experience with people across the city with different, like different from you, but in a shared space. It was so much fun. Yeah.
0: So you majored in education. You were determined to teach in Detroit. You wanted yes. to come back to your hometown and teach. Um, how did the, how did your desires and want to give back uh, reconcile with the realities of teaching in the city?
1: <laughs> That's an interesting question. Um, so I mentioned previously that yeah. I taught I student taught at Detroit Open School. Yeah. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was very similar, just you know, a school culture that really felt like where I where I went to I'm school. This in the
0: trend with you when school was closing.
1: Huh? I know. I was like, like a Black Widow. <laughs> I know. And Burt is closed too. Yeah. Okay. Burt is gone. Um, our high school is, is a new edifice. Yeah. You know, it's not the pickle factory. It's no. like a glass oh, edifice. It's beautiful. Yeah. I wish we had that. Uh, but we had grit. Yeah. Grit and character. I wouldn't trade that. So I guess I, I'll take that statement back. But um, teaching at Bert was really why why I wanted to teach. I knew that, I knew my neighborhood schools were really racially segregated. I mean, yeah. and my parents wanted me to go to racially integrated schools, but I knew that uh, this is where Detroit schools, that's like the boundary of unequal schools yeah. because the magnet schools had more resources and they had programs that attracted kids from over the city. And my parents wanted me to have exposure to kids from all walks of life, uh, as opposed to, you know, you go to your neighborhood school and everybody's from your neighborhood. They wanted me to have more of a citywide, more multiracial experience. Uh, so when I taught at BERT, it was almost like what my parents were not wanting me to have. Yeah. Um, so, There were teachers who were genuinely invested, who had been there for a long time, but I think that um, overcrowded classrooms, uh, kids who are enduring conditions of poverty, uh, parents in varying stages of incarceration, uh, you know, there are some two-family households but I had kids uh, who had parents who, who were tethers or you know, dads in, in jail. Um, and or kids who were adopted who, you know, who had fetal alcohol syndrome. And mm-hmm. so behaviors that go along with that. Um, those were real, real challenges. Yeah. And I learned that I didn't have the skill set, like I wasn't prepared to really teach foundational literacy skills or literacy in a way that was culturally sustaining for my students. I didn't have that. And so I decided to get a reading specialist certification so that So while I was doing my coursework, I was helping my students become literate citizens. Like they were actually reading because of the skills that I acquired. From grad school, it's just this really remarkable experience yeah. to watch my children become readers when the existing curriculum wasn't preparing them for that. Okay, that was really eye-opening for me. Yeah,
0: yeah. So you, you're working. You're a full-time teacher. You're working, and what I think, what I just heard, you decided to pursue graduate school. I did. While I had to still. I had to working full time, right? <laughs> and you went on and pursued an additional endorsement, but then you went on beyond that to get a master's, and then eventually a PhD. A
1: PhD from yeah. Michigan State University,
0: yeah. You finally got to go to Michigan State. I finally got to go yes. to Michigan State okay, with see? right
1: with with my esteemed dissertation advisor Susan Florio Romaine. She's
0: absolutely incredible. I don't like giving them credit, but Michigan I know, State is but, a decent institution. Right. They, and they, have they an ex- produce good people. They do, and they have an yeah.
1: exceptional uh, doctoral program. It's I really know. exceptional.
0: So, but all right, that's enough. I know. <laughs> it but, is, but, though it um, is. But no, you did all of this while still working full time. Yes. You, so you went to school and worked, and that's how passionate you were about building your career and becoming a better educator. Right. Now, how did you reconcile leaving K through 12 to start teaching higher ed?
1: You know, I wanted, like, there are a variety of factors, but I think, um, I'm not a morning person. Number one. <laughs> and you know, being in the public school system, you have to be there at eight o'clock in the morning. It's and, early, right? right. And so, you know, And a good majority of the time that I was teaching, I was also a graduate student. So doing my work, coming home, continuing the planning, and then doing my graduate studies and, you know, all of that, going to bed at 12, 1 o'clock every morning, and then racing in to get to the classroom every morning. It, you know, like because yeah. there are some professionals who go hang out at the bar and then they come, you know, I was like studying and writing through the night and then going to school in the morning. And I just kind of reasoned that, you know, I am have an academic schedule. I'm not going to be at a site from 8 a.m. until 4 p.m. I have more autonomy over my schedule if I want to raise a family at some point or another. Um, I really didn't find that K-12 was conducive to being a mom where I could really be involved unless I went part-time in that capacity. Okay. So, it, so if I wanted to start a family, yeah. I reason that. And my kids know me. I'm a presence in their lives. I'm, you know, if somebody forgets something at school, I can go, I volunteer at, at school, like, I am visible. Everybody knows who I am. Yeah. And if I were in a classroom all day, I couldn't be there. Yeah. And I knew okay. that. So I think there there are quite a few moms who make it work, who, you know, they, they parent, they're in that public school setting, they're doing it, yeah. but it's really a marathon and it's really hard. And, you know, if I decided that I would not pursue graduate studies while I was teaching, maybe it yeah. would have been different but I was ready to try something new too. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to impact the field more too. It's one thing to be impactful in your classroom with your families and collaborating with your colleagues in your school, but it's another, another level of impact where you can prepare teachers to teach wherever they wanna go. Yeah. And you have planted a seed for them to be culturally sustaining and to teach with the social justice mindset wherever they decide to teach. So I really wanted to have that influence. Instead of
0: impacting one classroom, you can impact multiple multiple classrooms classrooms. through the training and preparation of other teachers. Exactly.
1: And I think being culturally sustaining more than ever is so super important. And um, I've taken really like the best elements of my practice. So I think that if I would have taught in Florida... (laughs) If I were teaching in Florida now and doing the things that I was doing in my in my K-12, You'd be I'd fired. be fired. Yeah, I'd, yeah I'd be <laughs> You'd absolutely be fired. fired in Florida. Right, right. Because I, I would te- I would I would teach the Holocaust to my yeah. third graders. We'd we talk about all kinds of things. We talk about um injustice. So like if we were reading the Titanic in the reading series, we talk about the divisions of class, and my kids would get really upset at the way the third class passengers were treated like that is completely uniquely unfair, yeah. and I was you know doing the right thing even though, you know that society like like Number of the Stars for example, yeah. um, I don't know if you know that that mm-hmm. work of young adult fiction, but it's um, one that my students were deeply invested in because, you see a fam- a family in Denmark uh, taking on an extra child whose parents are like in hiding. To basically evade the Holocaust, okay. and to know that trauma of like, okay, we're taking you on as an extra child in our household. The Johansens did this, yeah. and um, oh no, like the Rosens or the Johansens—I'm getting the names mixed up. Yeah. but and to to risk to risk uh, persecution for that. My students had that deep connection as early as third grade yeah and when you have school districts now really pushing teachers to teach opposing viewpoints of the Holocaust, like, well, what are the opposing viewpoints? <laughs> How do you do that? Um, yeah, you know, right. Strange. Like right. Very strange. And the ways that teachers are so restricted now from teaching black history, from teaching, yeah about Black Lives Matter, from teaching about racial inequality, like it's a social problem that exists and if you can mold your students to do something about it, to be a difference maker, to be an advocate, I think is so important. So I would have been long fired. Like I taught the Watsons go to Birmingham for years. Do you know that one?
0: The say again? The
1: Watsons go to Birmingham, 1963. No. So it's... It's okay. a work of uh, historical fiction by Christopher Paul Curtis, okay. where um, the Watson family drives their juvenile delinquent son to Birmingham, Alabama, okay. to get, you know, kind of like let me have an, my let me have your grandmother, you know, school you so that you can behave, right? Okay. Uh, so Grandma Sands attended the Sixteenth Street Baptist Church, Church, and that was like. So, so basically, okay. you you get to the site of this church bombing yeah. and the trauma that comes from that from the narrator of the text. And my students, just my sixth grade students in Grosse Point, were always so invested in the Watson family. Okay. So in, in, in my classes, I may have had like one or two black kids, everybody else's variety of European ethnics, and they all connected with the Watson family. And when Kenny Watson experienced the trauma of seeing the church bombing and thinking that one of one of the Mary Jane shoes in, in the rubble was his sister, because his sister went to the church congregation that morning and they learned about the childrens, oh, wow. you know, the children participating yeah. in marches from that congregation, and that's why it was targeted. I would have been fired today. Yeah. But kids need to know that. And when you have the capacity to know that racial inequality is wrong, that um, racial profiling is wrong. There's nothing right about that. There's a system that's broken. And if you deny that experience from your youth, what are they gonna do about it when they're of age? And you have to prepare for that reality that they can be somebody to make a difference. I would have so been fired.
0: Yeah. that's. What yeah the yeah. teaching whole this we can hold do a whole other podcast, I know a whole on other podcast on that, on right, the right, stuff. but I take those like,
1: elements to my teaching. teaching. And so it's like it's still in my lesson planning. The Watsons go to Birmingham. And then yeah. when I see my students planning lesson plans around that, you see it. it's that's really awesome. cool. Like, yeah. wow, that's critical race theory. I've been a cra- critical race theory teacher for as long as I've been a teacher because students need to be empowered. They need to have a voice, voice. Let's see there. So
0: yes. again, again, part of
1: and
0: he said we got a whole <laughs> thing, but um, it's a whole other thing. You have right? a whole lot of elements to you that are individual rabbit holes. We but right, but, um, and
1: I, I'm like i pa- I'm passionate about children's and young adult literature yeah. too. Yes. Well,
0: I, um, well, thing I'm curious about and really wanted to spend some time on though is your um, best classroom project. Yes. And I think what I find again, I find unique about your story is your educational background and how you've used it to help others create a roadmap to how they can find the best options and opportunities for their children. and. You've taken, yeah, you've gone to different unique schools in the city, right. different experiences. You were born and raised on the west side of the city, stayed. You came back to the city. Yes. And you still live in the city. <laughs> I still do. I'm not going to give you the corner this time. Right. But, um, <laughs> you, you live in the city. You start. You You had a, started a family and you hit a point like all Detroit parents hit. How am I going to get my kids educated exactly. in this city under the existing conditions when I, and forgive me for speaking for you, correct me right. if I'm wrong. Right. Oh, no. You're, you're, I believe you're in spot this on. city. I'm committed to this city. I want to be a part of this city's regrowth, you know, rebranding, you know, fe- rising from the ashes. Exactly. Uh, your husband supports you in that. I don't know. Is your husband from Detroit as well? He's
1: from Detroit as well. He grew up in Short Forest.
0: Okay. Also north also the west side. Okay. Yeah. So, um you all both decided to stay. How did you determine which you were going to the path for your children's education and how did that lead to the best classroom project?
1: Well, I go back to poolside Bull YMCA. Okay. And, you know, I'm a little bit episodic, so <laughs> I'll go back to so we'll put that on just like we'll put that in the wings for a minute. So I live in Indian Village. We moved there in 1999. And by the time we moved to the neighborhood, the families that had kids, like the kids, most of the kids aged out. So it was a neighborhood that was like, had become a bedroom community that was largely devoid of young children. So the Indian village that I knew had kids that went to Burton and Cass Mm -hmm. and one of my best friends grew up on Seminole and so I spent a lot of time in Indian village which is how I even learned about, I didn't even know the neighborhood existed until I went to my friend's house that, this is a really cool neighborhood, you know, like you've got a back staircase, a butler pantry, like this is really, you know, and like all the houses were like so uniquely different. So that's how we ended up in the neighborhood. But to to see that, and this is something that communities go through: kids age out, yeah. and but families with young children were not moving yeah. in. Um, so during the early years in, in the neighborhood, uh, we had issues with uh, you know the foreclosure crisis hit hard. There were families that had baby monitors in the house next door because scrap thieves were coming in. Uh, so that, like, like that, that period of, like, uncertainty was when families with young children were planning to have kids, were starting to move to the neighborhood. So the year, Nora was born in 2010, so we didn't have kids for, like, 10 years. Um, so once Nora came into the picture, that's when we started seeing more families moving in, because you are buying a really nice house. That may, maybe like needed some renovation, right. but for a fraction of the cost, of what you pay to be in the suburbs. So we started seeing more strollers emerging, and then and so you know you, go to you go to the, the local YMCA for for swim class, and and. She was in swim for quite a few years. And uh, so at about three, you, know, you start to really connect with these families. Poolside, this is, it comes into in my, like anything that's written about me, like this, like a lot of this started poolside oh, at the Bow IMCA. So there was Indian village families, but there were also uh, families that lived in Midtown, families that lived in Lafayette Park. What are you going to do for school? So Olga Stella and I, Co-facilitated the best classroom project, and it began with a post bedtime meeting um, by phone. <laughs> like let's so have a conference call. Meeting. Like what are we going to do? Okay. Uh, then Kelly Sullivan, who's featured in the film, mm-hmm. um, I, my child, my child's K five school journey in Detroit, voices from best classroom project. Uh, yeah. She organized a meeting in her living room, and then we started organizing meetings with excellent schools Detroit. Like, you need a scorecard, and you need to visit schools in the daytime. And and this was during a time, too, when the succession of public school closures had happened. Yeah. So it was a recognized, so where you going to go to school was also, like, the schools that we knew, that I knew, because I was from the city, closed. So Detroit opened, Gone. Burton International School had moved twice. Didn't have the same. Didn't have the same flavor as when I was a kid. Yeah. So we had a neighborhood that was looking like what I remembered from growing up, from my childhood. And I wanted to have my daughter at that time to have a similar experience that I had. The first cohort is now in eighth grade, and the first group of students just started CAST Tech recently, okay. and uh, UDJ, so Augustella's child is at University of Detroit, yeah, UDJ, so to have that sustainability where families are contributing time and resources, and that's what promotes educational equity. Racially integrated schools where there are resources provided and families are deeply connected, and that promotes a racially integrative effect, but also equity because the programming is so
0: good. This scorecard you developed right, what are some of the elements of the scorecard? What are some of the things parents should be thinking of, should be aware of? What are some of the questions that a parent wouldn't necessarily think to ask because right. they don't necessarily have your perspective, you know, your educational background right. or your you know as you know someone who ran this program, what right. are the questions they don't know
1: so those are really big ingredients that, for me, really kept me out of some of the schools. So, like, if you're adhering only to this literacy program without deviating from it, you know, for me, that's a no. Other people, can you live with that? So there Mm. are families that did live with that. And then over-testing, too, and knowing that, you know, having autonomy means that you can prepare kids to do well on the test and maybe give them some test-taking skills, but not teaching directly to the test. Okay. And if you're a proficient reader, you're going to do well on that standardized test without being like taught just how to take it. if That makes sense. Yeah. So really, like like teachers that are deeply connected to their communities, that are collegial and work together, that are culturally sustaining, have an early childhood background, um, and can challenge students academically. Okay. And doing so appropriately, Jen. Yeah.
0: No, it does. Yeah. I, 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 no, it helps. I mean, it helps because it's still, there's so much. The overall gist goes to try to help our listeners get an understanding of the educational landscape, what the options are out there and opportunities. And we'll get, we'll get more into where they can find you later. Right, for definitely. Consultation or things like that.
1: Right. And I will say that we've made school choice decisions so much easier. Yeah. So much easier. Uh, I mean, you could probably get away without doing a visit, but just knowing that like, here's here's the short list of like the 15, pl- between 15 and 20. Here's okay. where you know existing families are, and that these are families who are willing to bring you in and to become a part of the school family. You can say that with confidence. Uh, 10 years ago, probably not so much. And you know, I'm from the city, yeah. I taught in the city, and to not be able to really recognize what was going on anymore, uh, and friends school was one of our top choices. Yeah. Closed by the time it was time to actually like go enroll, yeah. like that's insane. Like, how does a school like that I mean, it was mismanaged? But yeah. to not have that available and that really would have been our first choice because we really wanted to stay in the in city, city proper so badly.
0: Yeah. No, I get yeah. it. Um, I'm curious. So, what is the next? What are the next steps for your project? How do you expand, or where do you go with your research? From here,
1: right. Well, well, right now I'm organizing the the workshop series. So we just hosted our um, early childhood elementary workshop. Uh, the next workshop is uh, middle school and high school. Our okay. hope is to to host that at Cast Tech. Uh, so it's basically the K twelve college admissions pipeline. So. You don't have to be locked into all of these meetings or workshops but like which one really piques your interest where your child is Uh, so that's that's one area to really expand the scope of the best classroom project across first it was like kindergarten yeah now it's like now we're at the high school but then you know, these are kids who going to want to go to college too. Yeah. So having workshops across the continuum, not just for elementary. So that's, that's one lens. I have an article that's in press that document. So like the the very first group of families was multiracial in scope, mostly white with a bit of Brown. Mm-hmm. Like one of the school visits, like I was the only one who, vi- who came and they were expecting a white person. Like yeah. I thought it was like, no, it's, it's white with a little bit of brown. Yeah. I'm some of the brown. <laughs> but now the group is predominantly African-American, and it's largely underground. They, they have meetings away from the Facebook site. Okay. And um, so I have documented their perspectives in terms of... Um, it's an enactment of black parent protectionism. So it's the concern that your child may experience racial maltreatment at school. And to really identify a school where, you know, if you could have racially integrated teaching staff that embraces your child culturally, socially, and emotionally, that's really critical. Uh, And, you know, being involved to the point where, you know, racial maltreatment may happen at some point, but like... That it could be mitigated and mitigated well. So the first, the first cohort, like the original, the OGs, original gangsters, the first group, yeah. we were really, really more so thinking about developing cross-cultural friendships and relationships, and knowing that our children would be challenged academically and that sort of thing, and you know, culturally sustaining. Yes, but the language wasn't. I'm afraid that my child is going to experience racial harm in school. But what, so when the group was predominantly Afri- is predominantly African-American, that's the conversation. So I've documented their process of selecting schools for their kids, which is easier because of what the original group had, you know, the pathway that, that was established. Yeah. And uh, because these are families that are middle class, my next inquiry is going to be attentive to how they interact in school with children who are have, have working class backgrounds or under conditions of poverty because the schools are economically diverse. Okay. And that's something that's come out in some of the literature that I reviewed is that when you have black families who are enrolling in um, racially integrated schools, that's part of the conversation. Like, yeah. is my child going to... And then also knowing that the schools are economically diverse. If you're... Middle class person, are you going to have a mutual respect for kids yeah. that are not as economically healed as you are? So that's, um, and then also, too, looking at the nature of literacy practices. Because when I first documented their initial schooling, it was yeah. during remote. Okay. And I think they were left with the feeling that I don't know what literacy instruction looks like because it's all been virtual. So that's the next layer. Now that they're in person, Um, so I do have a book contract. uh, Okay. Where, forthcoming in August of twenty four. Okay. And then um, I have the film, for so I did the 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 K five journey. Yeah. So the middle school journey is um, in the editing phase. Okay. So and my aim is to get high school School. and then to do it. Like whole K twelve, okay, and maybe college too, and then my son Hugh, <laughs> um, uh, Jason insists, my husband insists yeah. that he get a film just for him, and so, <laughs> you know, so the experience of a black boy yeah. in an elite school,
0: okay, what that's
1: like. He's the only brown boy in his class. I just never imagined that it would have come to this because there was a there was a moment where I was wondering like, are we going to Be able to stay and have a family here. If I don't recognize the schools anymore, just to not recognize the schools anymore.
0: I just, I think it speaks to the resiliency of the spirit of Detroiters. I mean, folks, they care about their kids. They care about the schools, regardless of everything else going around the schools, the bankruptcy of the school district, the bankruptcy of the city itself, the bankruptcy of the changing of demographics of the city. People still want good opportunities for their children, and I think that you what you're doing is God's work. I mean, helping folks chart that path and make best decisions for them is awesome. But in the interest of time- yes, We I need know. to transition <laughs> to, our, um, to what we call our lightning round. Okay, and what this is that? Is, our lightning round is just, it's a series of questions we ask every guest, the same questions. They're more about your engagement and interaction with the city. And the first question is, what's your Coney order?
1: Hmm. I have not been in a long time. <laughs> so I'm probably not not as tired as I, yeah. I should be. But just your typical coney dog. Okay. And fries. That's yeah. yeah, Hugh Hugh likes the coney dogs. I just take a little bite. <laughs> because I know what's
0: you know what's I have a friend
1: that. Who, who worked Okay. and that mm-hmm. just killed it for me. <laughs> okay. I know. I mean, there's everything in that meat.
0: Yeah. So,
1: I'm sorry, uh, We <laughs> like, you know it's enough Pepsi, <laughs> you know it's So once in a while, but it would be a Coney we Dog. The, we got
0: the food police on I the show know, the
1: right. Well, you know, um, we're, we're at the age where you got to watch what you eat yes. or else, yes, you know.
0: Sure. Uh, who's your favorite Motown artist? <sighs> oh,
1: that is hard. Probably Marvin Gaye. Okay. Yeah. Um, That's a hard... How do you pare down to just one?
0: I, Come on! You're supposed to just I first know. one Mar- come to okay. mind. Okay, Mar- Marvin Gay. Okay. okay. Uh, Got it. Favorite place to go in the city.
1: The Riverwalk. Okay. That's my happy place.
0: Okay. Um, last question is: Where can we find you?
1: Where can you find me? Um, you can find me at darahill.org. Okay. I have a website. All right. Um, you can also find me. We have a new. We have a website for the best classroom project but I don't think we've confirmed the actual web address okay. because we hired a team of web designers. Okay. Um, so it's, I'll have to send that to you, but you can find that website. You can Google
0: the Best Classroom Project you and should it'll, be able come to Google it. it'll come up eventually. It'll
1: come up eventually and then uh, the Best Classroom Project has a Facebook site. Yeah.
0: Cool. Yeah. Well, all right, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it, Professor Dara Hill. Best Classroom Project. If you are looking to find the best educational options and opportunities for your young person or youth in your life, uh, you need to get in contact with Professor Hill and she can help you map out your path and make the best decision. Uh, This has been the Distinctly Detroit Podcast. You can find us anywhere you get your pods. Please like, rate, and subscribe and we will see you next time. This has been the Distinctly Detroit Podcast. This is a production of the University of Michigan Detroit Center. You can find us anywhere you get your pods. Please like, subscribe, and rate us. This podcast is executive produced by Marlon Franklin, edited by Ronza Stanton, and written by Shailene Jones and Fyodor Ship III.